All right, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, we're going to be in chapter 3, and we will pick up in verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Um, this uh, sermon series is just titled, Romans, the Essentials of Christianity. Because that's what we're looking at, is the very basic things that, um, that, that are necessary for Christianity. Um, the first three chapters of Romans, or at least the first two and a half chapters of Romans, are all about sin. They're all about the sin of mankind, what we have done, how we are guilty before God, and then when Paul has made it to the to point that it seems there's absolutely no hope, no redemption, no possibility of help, that's when he truly introduces Jesus to us. And so um, we're going to be looking this morning at the faith that saves. Um, and all across the country this morning, people much like us have got, got up, they've got their Sunday best on, and they've come out to church. Now, some people go to church every week, some people don't go so often, some people only go um, on, on Easter and Christmas, but lots and lots of people got out and went to church this morning. And, you know, the truth is, we could probably ask, our, ask any random 10 people anywhere in America right now that are attending church, why are you here? Why, why, why do you come to church? And you would get 10 different answers, right? But the questions I'm most interested in, you could probably ask 10 random people that are at church, how are they saved? And you would probably still get 10 different answers. Now, if you were to ask that same 10 people, why are you saved? You'd probably get 10 blank stares. Because we don't usually think about why were we saved? Why did God do what he did? Why did God send his son? And if we do think about it, sometimes we probably are tempted to think, for us, to save us. And, and we've even, there's been songs that have been popular, you know, I was on his mind, things like that. Why are we saved? So hopefully this morning we can answer those two fundamental questions. Um, why are we saved and how are we saved? So those are going to be the questions that we try to answer this morning as we dig into this passage. So I try to always do just one sentence that kind of encapsulates the message of the sermon. So it is a spoiler in effect, but here's the sermon in a sentence. God's righteous character is revealed in the sacrifice of Jesus for the salvation of every believing sinner. Now, I know that's a little bit of a, of, of a big uh, idea, but we will get into it as we go. So I want to read to you. This is Romans chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 21. We'll finish out the chapter that takes us through verse 31. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It is to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? 
Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Okay, so we're going to look at this in three parts. It's not completely in order, picking up three themes that this passage gives us. So the first thing we're going to be looking at is faith in God's righteousness. So although this passage describes how and why we are saved, it is abundantly clear that we are not the main idea of this passage. And that's something that I want to make very clear from the very beginning. Your salvation is not actually about you. It is about God. So think about this for a minute. We all gathered here this morning. We didn't gather here, as, as lovely as some of you people look, we didn't gather here to see each other, did we? We didn't come here hoping, well, I hope I get to see this person, I hope I get to see that person. We gathered here this morning to see and to glorify and to worship God. We came here for the Lord. If we came here for any other reason, it's time to kind of reevaluate that and change it. We came here for the glory of God. That is why we are saved also. So let's look at this. God is the central character in this passage, and his righteousness is the driving force behind our salvation. I will repeat what it says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest. So this is the big idea. This is the point that God's righteousness is going to be revealed in what happens next. So he says the righteousness of God is being made manifest. So how? How is the righteousness of God being made manifest? So let's look into this. God's righteousness is not revealed in his ability to give laws. He says God's righteousness is not manifest in the law although the law and the prophets attested to it. So God's righteousness is not revealed in the fact that he can give laws. Anybody can give commands and orders. That's not what makes God so great. It is so much greater because it can be demonstrated apart from the law. Yes, God says what is right. God says what is wrong. And that is a divine attribute. But God goes even further than that by demonstrating his righteousness in a way that is apart from the law. What is that way? Well, we're getting there. So Paul makes it clear that we are not departing from the law. In fact, he states that the law and the prophets attest to the righteousness of God. This means that the good news of Jesus was even proclaimed in the Old Testament. And if you read the Old Testament looking for Jesus, you will find him there. If you read the Old Testament looking for the gospel, you can find the gospel there. That's the reality and that's the reason Paul had, had mentioned this in chapter 2. That's the reason that the Jews were under the same condemnation as the Gentiles. Although they had the law, although they had the oracles of God, the teachings of God, they chose not to follow them, and they were therefore guilty. So from the days of the Old Testament, God has been patient concerning the sins of his people. And so that's the thing that we are going to be looking at, is that God was patient about sin. How was he patient about sin, and how is that... How is that demonstrating his righteousness? Because typically, patient about sin, tolerant of sin, is not righteousness, but compromise. Did God compromise by being patient over the sins of mankind? Absolutely not, and we will see that as we go forward. In a strictly legalistic sense, it would seem unrighteous to overlook sin, but that's not how God is portrayed. God's righteousness is revealed in the fact that he did overlook sin until the time was right, for Jesus to be revealed as the payment for sin. In Galatians chapter 4, it tells us that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. So the arrival of Jesus, the timing of the arrival of Jesus was ordained by God. 
So all of those that lived before Jesus, when they sinned, God was willing to overlook. If they lived by faith, he was willing to overlook that sin until Jesus arrived. Once Jesus arrived, the landscape changes. Because once Jesus is on this earth, he pays the price for sin. Now he's not overlooking sin. He is reaching out and proclaiming his message so that those that believe can then be saved. So there is a change that happens when Jesus comes. So this means that laws... Uh, that, that God gave the laws that made men guilty, and he gave the sacrifice that set men free. So why are we guilty before God? The first couple of chapters of Romans tells us that we are guilty before God because he established law. He gave the Jews the Ten Commandments and the other laws that we find in the Old Testament. And for Gentiles, people that were not Jews in, in the ancient days, he wrote on their heart right and wrong. We call that a conscience today, but he put that in people's hearts. And so they knew right from wrong. And so what Paul said is those that went against their conscience, they were guilty because of their conscience. The, the natural law that God put in their hearts. Those that knew the law and broke that law, they were guilty because of the, 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 the sins that they committed against the law of God. Now, maybe you're beginning to pick something up. You cannot talk about the gospel without talking about sin. That seems like a rough subject on Easter morning. We're supposed to be happy, right? We're supposed to be celebrating Jesus' resurrection. Well, let me tell you, if you wake up tomorrow and it's a sunny day, and you wake up the next day and it's a sunny day, and you wake up the next day, and it's a sunny day. And you wake up for the next 50 days, and it's a sunny day, and it never rains. You know what? You're not going to appreciate the sunshine so much. But if today, if it does what it seems like it's going to do, and we have a, you know, just a gully washer, a storm, and it's kind of rough, and it's kind of scary, and you know, the wind starts blowing, and, and there's threat of these bad weathers, and James Fan takes his coat off and says that there's a polygon, then the next day, when it's a beautiful sunny day, you're going to appreciate it, aren't you? Well, that's what the Bible wants us to do, is talk about the storm before the sunshine. The storm is our sin, the things that we have done wrong. Now, I know that the Bible says that from the beginning, mankind, Adam and Eve, fell into sin. We just preached about that not too long ago, and so that sin is what condemns us. But Paul doesn't make that the, the big idea. The big idea that he makes is the things that we do. So he made lists. He listed all things that were sins, and we talked about those things. But the reality is we know our sin. We have the law, what's written in the Word of God, and we have our conscience. And both of those things are screaming at us daily, telling us we are in sin. We need good news, right? The Bible tells us that without Jesus, we can't be saved. And so here is the righteousness of God being revealed in that he was patient with sinners, and then when the time was right, he sent his son, Jesus, to save us. So... We are saved. Why are you saved? So that's the blank stare one, remember? You know, you ask people, how are you saved? And some people are going to say, I believe in Jesus. Other people are going to say, because I go to church, I pay my tithes, I do this and I do that and I do this other. And they've got this checklist of things that they do in order to be saved. Well, whatever the answer is, the reality is we don't always ask the question, why are we saved? Some people might say, well, I'm saved so that I don't go to hell. But that's not why God saved you. Why did God save you? We are saved as a demonstration of the righteousness of God. You ever went to a company maybe you haven't heard of, you went to their website and you got to looking around at their products and services and you started seeing testimonials and you had this picture of this person that looked very happy and then they had this story of what all they had bought and what all they had done and everything that, that basically would, would you know, be your experience if you were to engage in business with this company. That testimonial, that's what we are. 
We are God's testimonial. We are his witness of his righteousness. If God can save me, he can save anyone. If God can save you, he can save anyone. Your story of salvation is for God's righteousness. It is for his edification and glory. That's the point. That's why we came here this morning, and that's definitely the point of the gospel, that we lift up God with our story. You see, it's not so small as to be just God rescuing me or just God rescuing you. It is so large that God is rescuing the world. And the only way to get that message out is to have the testimony of those who have already been redeemed. And so that is the point of what we're looking at here this morning. We were saved to demonstrate the righteousness of God. Your redemption is a proclamation to the world that God is both the righteous judge and the redeeming father. Here's the problem that people tend to have. People say, well, if God is good, God is righteous, why does he allow sin in the world? You know, people that recognize that sin leads to suffering, they want to know why does God allow sin into the world? Why does God allow pain and suffering into the world? Well, it is a demonstration of his righteousness. You see, this passage tells us that God was patient with sin. Sin has consequences. Sin brings suffering. Sin brings death. It brings all these terrible things. But God is patient with sinners. He is patient with sin so that they can hear the gospel, respond to Jesus Christ in faith. We know that not everybody's going to be saved. There will be people that live in sin their entire lives, and they will just leave a path of destruction wherever they go. But the gospel is there for those who will believe. And that's the message, and that is the righteousness of God. So we are not saved because we deserve it. We are not saved because we earn it. We are not saved for any other reason. So if you were to ask me, is there anything that I can do to be saved? Well, let me check my notes. No, you cannot do anything to be saved. That is God's work in your life. You can't earn it. You can't maintain it. You can't deserve it. You can't merit it. The very definition of grace excludes any idea of merit or earning it or deserving it. God loves us. He poured out his son's life for us. And if we believe in his son, he then gives us salvation. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But that's the point. It's not something that we can earn. Our eternal life is an everlasting testimony to the righteousness of God that he was able to overlook our sins until he made the appropriate payment. It was a payment we couldn't make. It was only God. Now, our society today is very human-centric. The gospel is very theocentric. In other words, we want to think about how this relates to me when the Bible and the gospel wants to always talk about how this relates to God. Okay, so that's an unchanging message. So what if the message of the gospel always had to be explained in terms of you? Well, for you, it's one story. For you, it's another story. For you, it's a whole different story. There wouldn't be one message of the gospel. But if it is about God... That is a universal message that we can all understand, that we can all receive, that we can all get behind. The gospel is ultimately about the glory of God. In his righteousness, he was patient. He watched over us until it was time for Jesus to come to this earth. There's no way that you can read Romans 3 and believe that there is anything in you worth saving or that there was any action you took that saved you. When we read Romans, just the passage that we read, there's nothing in there that says, well, you did this and you did this and then you got saved. We're not earning it. We're not deserving it. It is God and it is his righteousness alone that is putting us in the place where we can be saved. So from this, we get three really important points. One, we were publicly saved 
as a proclamation of God's righteousness. So we should continue to proclaim that wherever we go. God did not save you in secret, so do not keep your salvation a secret. He saved you publicly. You, are, you have been publicly displayed as forgiven, so declare that publicly. This is not popular in this world today. Let me tell you, going out and claiming that you're a Christian will get you in a lot of very difficult conversations very quickly. You see, people think that Christians feel superior. People think that Christians say, well, we are right, and we have the right way of it, and you are wrong, and you are a sinner, and you're going to hell. Well, that's not exactly what we're saying. What we're saying is that we were all sinners. We were all wrong. We were all dying and going to hell. But we have found the way out. We have found that one who is here to rescue us. It's Jesus Christ, and we want to tell you about him. That's the message of Christianity. But so often, the message gets blurred. And when it's not about God, that's going to happen. Because we change it, it's no good. So the second major principle that we get from this is, although we are saved apart from the law, we must continue to live according to all of God's righteous words. Christians should be different than non-Christians. Period. You can put that in any context you want to put it in, and we should be different. We should live differently. We should communicate differently. We should celebrate differently. We should live our We should drive differently. We should be different employees than other people are. We should be different because we are not governed by just the laws of man. We are governed by the laws of God. Paul says at the very end of this, he says that he is not doing away with the law. No, we honor the law. We continue to live the law. We're just saved by grace. Saved by grace but obedient to the law of God. Finally, when we think of our salvation, we must remember that it is centered in God's character, not our actions. And let me tell you what a relief this is. There is nothing that I cannot mess up. Absolutely nothing. I say that I like to cook, and I really do. But what that means is I like for Amanda to, to, to put all the seasoning on the meat, her to remember to thaw it out the day before, and then for her to put all the seasoning on the meat, tell me how hot and tell me how long, and then I put it on heat for a period of time and take it off. That's my contribution to the meal. So I say I like cooking, but that's really all I do is just apply heat. I could mess that up. Y'all, I can still mess that up. I can put a timer on my phone and ignore it. I can mess that up in a number of different ways. I can not have the right heat on. I can let the, you know, the grill completely run out of gas. There's all kinds of ways that I can still make a problem out of something that is almost completely done for me. So even if there is just one step that requires me, I can mess it up. And let me tell you, we're not very different. If there was one part of our salvation that depended on our performance, we would lose it. We would lose it. It is only by the grace of God that we're saved, and we need to remember that. Faith that saves will recognize the righteousness of God led him to set up our path for salvation. He didn't save you because you deserved it. He saved you because he loved you. Just remember that. So let's look at the next part. Faith in God's Son. Okay, so obviously, Jesus features majorly in the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ after all. So early on in this passage, we discover that we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, this has been such a difficult element of the gospel because for so many years, people have always wanted to take some kind of action. They want to do something. I want to, I want to take certain steps. There are certain things that I have to do. Nothing in this world is free. We've been told that from very, very young. Nothing's free. We understand that. But trusting in Jesus means that we wait on him for our salvation. 
and that is difficult. You can't do anything to make yourself more saved. You can't do anything to, 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 to make it somehow better. You're waiting on Jesus. You're believing in Jesus and waiting on him. That's what faith truly is. So we could possibly be living in the most self-centered generation to walk the face of the earth, and a lot of people want to make this about them. They want to make it about themselves. God is not calling you to be your true self. God is not calling you to live in your truth. God is not calling you to reestablish reality in a terms that suit you. God is calling you to be like him. He is calling you to be holy. He is calling you to be separate. He's not calling you to be yourself. If being yourself was good enough, you wouldn't need to be saved. You clearly have to change. We all clearly have to change. And so that's an important part that the culture needs to hear today. We have a lot of folks that do like to walk around and call themselves Christians, believing that they can set their own terms for their salvation. Some people like to say, well, God is here to make you happy, or God is here to make you wealthy. There are massive, massive networks of churches built on the concept that God's going to give you money and he's going to give you health. There's no promise in the Bible of those things. What is in the Bible is that God is going to call you to serve. That doesn't fill as many seats, though, does it? And so that doesn't make people as happy. That doesn't give people as many reasons to sing until we get out of our minds and start looking at God. When we get in a godly mindset, we recognize that he is deserving of all of our life because he gave us his son's life. So there's no room for that kind of thought in the gospel. When Paul states that there is no distinction between the people coming to Jesus in faith, he is indicating that both Jew and Gentile stand on equal ground when they approach the cross. That was the divide in the first century. People that were Jewish in, 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 in you know, ethnicity and in religion and people that were Gentile, meaning everyone else. We got division and diversity and all those things going on in this world today. And let me tell you, there is, a, there is even ground around the cross. We all come as lowly as we are. We bow before the Lord and we beg for our salvation. That's who we are. There is no one that gets preferential treatment. There are no VIP Christians. There are no people that deserve more than others. We simply come before God seeking His grace. So there are nobody, there is no life circumstance, there is nothing that makes us have special consideration. We are separated from God by our sins, and Paul's already proved that everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It states that in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are justified by the works of Jesus. And that means that he paid the penalty for our sins and our record has been cleared. It doesn't mean that we never sinned. It means that the price, the penalty for our sin has been paid and now our record is clear. That's what justification means. It also says that we have been justified by the grace of God, which means that it was an act of God that we did not deserve or merit. We didn't earn salvation. We were given salvation. Very, very important. God gave this grace as a gift, which means that it, is, it was his choice, not our actions. God chose to save. God chose to act. Could he have allowed the world to roll right on in sin with no hope of redemption? Yes, he could have. It would have led to chaos and destruction, but instead he chose to act. He chose to send his son Jesus Christ into this world and save us. That was his gift. That was not our work, and we didn't earn it. All of this was accomplished through the redemption, 
which is Jesus Christ, which is in Jesus Christ, meaning that without the work of Jesus Christ, there would be no salvation for mankind. Another very common and popular idea today is that there are many ways to God. You can't find that in Scripture. You can't find anything that supports that in Scripture. The reality is the Bible is incredibly exclusive. We want to be inclusive. We want to say everybody, everybody, everybody. But we'll take everybody, but we won't take everybody's beliefs. We won't take everybody's other theories and other doctrines and other theologies. We will take what Scripture says. Scripture says that it was through Jesus that we are saved. When you call on the name of Jesus, you find salvation. When you call on any other name, you do not find salvation. It is Him and Him alone. Now, this gets a little technical for just a second, but I'll move quickly. God publicly displayed Jesus so that there could be no doubt concerning the reality of His plan. So, Jesus was not crucified in secret. It was outside of the city of Jerusalem. It was for public display right beside a main road. He was there. He was crucified. That was publicly seen. Okay, that's important. So faith is the belief in things that are not seen. But Jesus was publicly crucified. I'm not asking you this morning to agree with me that Jesus was crucified. That's a matter of record. You can believe that. Satan believes it. He was celebrating it at the time. Most people, if they have any sense about them and any historical knowledge, believe that Jesus lived and he was, he was crucified. All that happened publicly. So what is the unseen part about our faith? The sacrifice was seen. Our faith is that God uses that sacrifice to forgive our sins. That's the area of our faith. Go back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they were required to make certain sacrifices. They would make a sacrifice. They would bring an animal according to God's specifications. There was no re requirement of faith there. They were obedient. They, they brought the sacrifice. They made the sacrifice. They killed the animal. Everybody knew the animal was dead. It was bleeding. It was screaming. All those kinds of things. I know it's Easter and all that. But anyway, it was a horrible scene, right? Okay, so there was no requirement for faith there. The animal was dead and everybody knew it. The faith is that God would use that sacrifice to forgive their sins. Jesus was publicly displayed as, cruci as crucified. If you don't believe that, you're just refusing to believe facts. The faith part comes in when you believe that God's going to use that sacrifice to forgive your sins. You can't have the gospel without it. You can't have the gospel without that part. Faith is what is required. We have to believe. Jesus was displayed as a perpetuation. That's a very difficult word to totally define, which means that his precious blood turned away God's holy wrath against our sin. In the Old Testament, there on the Ark of the Covenant was a, a, an embellishment, I guess you would, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant that was like a bench. And they called that the mercy seat. On the Day of Atonement, when they made the sacrifice, the priest would go in, he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And that was, that was also translated by the same words that we're seeing here. Perpetuation. That's a piece of furniture, okay? Jesus was not being compared to a piece of furniture. That piece of furniture was the shadow or the representation of what he would be. Okay, so in, in, instead of thinking of it as that piece of furniture, we actually have to think about it in the pagan sense for just a moment, okay? So in the pagan sense, that same word, perpetuation, was used about their gods. When someone had angered a god, these were false gods, these were, these, were, these were pagan ideas, but just understand, when someone felt like they had angered a god, they would need to make a sacrifice so that it would turn away the wrath of that god. The god was angry about whatever, and until they received a sacrifice, that the anger would be there. Okay, so let's get back into biblical terms. Why is God angry? God is angry about sin. Sin is an affront. It is an abomination to God. All sin is evil in the sight of God. It is all something that must be judged. 
Okay? And so how are we going to turn away that judgment? How are we going to turn away that wrath? Not by our doing, not by our work, but by Jesus Christ. When he poured out his blood willingly for us, he turned away the wrath of God. That's what perpetuation means. So he was set forth as the one that took the wrath of God away from us. That was the public display, that he took the wrath of God away from us by pouring out his blood for us. So that's what perpetuation means. So until Jesus' death on the cross, every person um, is under judgment for their sins. Until Jesus' death for the cross. But after that, when God paid the price for our sins with the blood of Jesus, then we were given a new hope. And so if you read Romans and you read chapter 1 that talks about all the sins of the world, you read chapter 2, it talks about all the sins of the Jews, and you read chapter first part of chapter 3 where it talks about all the sins of everybody, you're thinking, okay, that's enough about sin. Where's the good news? Here it is. The good news is this. Jesus paid the price for that sin. That's the good news. And so that's what we have to hang on to. He came to help us be forgiven of our sins. So instead of God overlooking our sins anymore, he can now truly deal with them. Okay, so if, if everything is being overlooked, it's still there. But it was only overlooked until Jesus, and then that time got cut off. And now the, the accounts have to be settled. And so that's what Jesus does. He settles the account. He pays the price for our sins. So, we are saved because of the righteousness of God, and we are saved through the work of Jesus Christ. That is how we are saved. Your faith is not that Jesus was crucified. That's a matter of fact. Your faith is that God will use the sacrifice of Jesus to forgive you of your sins. That is what faith is. That's the faith that saves. So let's look lastly at the faith in God's glory. So this kind of covers the last couple of verses here. And I want to bring up a concept first before we get into this. Have you ever heard the term stolen valor? Stolen valor um, is something that a lot of Americans have become familiar with. Um, it has to do um, with a person who's not a veteran that poses as a veteran. Maybe they'll wear an, an, you know, a military uniform. Sometimes they're so bold and audacious as to have medals that describe maybe some of the things that they did, a Purple Heart or, or a Medal of Honor, something along those lines. Um, they tend to try to absorb the sympathy and the respect and the appreciation that people have for those that have served. And you know who usually catches them? Real veterans. Real men and women that have served this country usually call them on it. They point it out. And sometimes, and I've seen videos where, like in the mall or something, they'll actually stand there and say, stolen valor, stolen valor. They'll point it out because this person is trying to play on the sympathies of people, but they didn't pay the price. They didn't pay the price. So there is a different sort of stolen valor uh, that has become prevalent in the church. It's really always been there pretty much since the beginning. So there are people who would like to boast about their righteousness or their special standing in the eyes of God. So Paul basically finishes this up by saying, um, then what becomes of our boasting? Well, let me tell you, if you are boasting about your salvation, your standing in Christ, anything to do with your Christianity, that's stolen valor because you didn't earn it. You, you didn't pay the price. That is all God. So there are some people that like to boast about those things, about how good they are, about how righteous they are. Maybe they don't say it out loud. Some people just look down at people that aren't like them. That happens too. All of these are sinful attitudes that God will judge. We need to be aware of these things. There are people who like to boast about the number of people they have led to faith in Jesus. That is stolen valor. 
You don't save people. I've even heard preachers say, well, I saved three people today. No, you didn't. All we do is get up and talk. Jesus paid the price. We don't save people. Jesus saves people. Keep it clear. Don't steal his valor. Don't steal his glory. There are people who believe that they have been granted special authority by God. Let me tell you, if you're here this morning and you're born again, washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, you have the same authority, the same special privileges, the same benefits as anyone else who is saved. It doesn't matter how many degrees they have. It doesn't matter where they have served. It does not matter what they have done in the past. You have the same standing with God. God doesn't play favorites. Not before we're saved and not after we're saved. God does not play favorites. There are people who believe that they deserve to be showered with gifts because of their service. If you are like me and sometimes you read news stories and you hear about religious leaders that have fallen, a lot of times they try to manipulate people. They, they try to say, well, you know, I serve God, I do this, so I deserve this. I deserve that. We don't deserve anything. It doesn't matter what you've done. You're just fulfilling the calling that God has placed on your life. You know, when we go to work, we don't think anything special. We work, we earn a paycheck. That's what we earn. Well, for us as believers, the reward is that we get to spend eternity with God. This world has nothing for us. When we start seeking rewards from the world, we are looking the wrong direction. Always. It is bad. So among the redeemed, there can be no boasting because our salvation and standing with the Lord all goes back to the glory of God. You can't have any of that glory. No preacher can have any of that glory. No church can have any of that glory. It belongs to God. Don't take it from Him. We were saved because of the righteousness of God, the sacrifice of God's Son, and for God's glory. It is for His name's sake that we are saved, not ours. It is not a status symbol. Ultimately, Jesus told us that it's a cross, something that we bear. So, we are His, and we should reflect His glory, not project our own. It's not about us. You have heard about things like charisma and talent and promise and all those things. Well, None of those things really are the most important thing. When it comes to the things of God, it is Him. It is His charisma. It is His talent. It is His glory that is shown. Not ours. Not ever ours. We have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But when we proclaim our own righteousness, it still falls to the level of the filthy rags mentioned in Isaiah. So the righteousness that God gave you through Jesus Christ, that is clean and pure and true, and you can stand before God in that. But if you want to go out and work your own way, you cannot stand before God. It will be regarded as garbage. The law of faith that he mentions is that we are trusting in God for our salvation and we have no claim over the glory that it brings. It's the law of faith. It's not about meticulous obedience to the law. That comes. We, we, we live according to the law, but it's not about our obedience to the law. It's about Jesus Christ. It is about the glory of God. So, God is the Savior of all who believe, and He is the only one who can save. That's worth repeating. Our new lives should radiate the glory of God as we obey His law and proclaim His righteousness to a world that simply does not understand. This world is transactional at its very core. I do this, I get this. At the very basis, that's, that's how it works. That, that, that's how business works. That, that's how relationships typically tend to work, and that's, that's, 
usually how a lot of other things work, and that's why things are, are broken, because it's all about, I do this, I get this. It's transactional. Salvation is about God's grace. It's about Him giving it to us. And that is difficult for us to understand. So let's wrap this up. It is my hope that we now understand, all of us understand, that we are saved because of God's righteousness. That's what was being revealed on the cross, God's righteousness. It wasn't just our need that moved God. It was God's desire to be known in this world so that people would know who He is so that they could also enter a relationship with Him. It is also my hope that we know that we are saved through faith in Jesus' sacrifice. It's nothing else. You've got to understand that we all are under sin. The only way that we can be redeemed is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is finally my hope that we know that we were saved for the glory of God. That is why we do what we do. That is why we are here this morning, I hope. And it is certainly why we will go out and tell other people about Jesus. It is because we care about His glory. So, it is not about us, through us, or even for us that we have been saved. It is about Him. The faith that saves is a, is a faith that completely depends upon God and the atoning work of His Son, Jesus Christ. All over the world, not just America, all over the world, people are being sold a bill of goods. They're being told about a false God. A God that just simply loves everybody and is going to save everybody. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a holy and righteous judge. The only circumstance in which he will not judge sin is those that are covered by the blood of Jesus. It's the only circumstance. So in order to be a Christian, one, we have to recognize our sin. We have to recognize who we are, that we are in need of his grace. Then we have to turn away from that sin. It's another thing that's not being preached as often anymore. We can't go on sinning. If we go on sinning, then, then we negate the blood of Jesus Christ. We, 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 we throw shame on the name of Jesus Christ, and we will not be allowed to do that. So we have to recognize our sin, turn away from our sin, and then trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's what we have to do. Now, I know that all this time I've been telling you, you can't do things. Well, those are things, not that you can do, but that God will enable you to go through. You will recognize your sin at a certain point. God will bring you under conviction. You will know that you have sinned and offended a holy God. God will help you to turn away. He will begin to change you. And He will help you believe in Jesus Christ. And so what I ask you this morning is listen to God. And that's applicable for everybody. Those of you that have been Christians for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, listen to God. Those of you that may be brand new Christians, listen to God. Those of you that are somewhere in between, listen to God. Now, what we are about to do is partake in communion. And so, we, I'm going to ask now the deacons, um, Brother Nolan, to come forward and to, to help and distribute the elements. Now, as we have talked about the gospel the most important part for us to remember about our Lord Jesus is that He paid a physical price. You know, I told you that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Right? Am I getting this out of order? Okay, okay. He was publicly portrayed as crucified. What that means is that people saw it happen. 
Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, we weren't there. We didn't see it. And so in the church, we have a practice that we do that reminds us of the price that Jesus actually paid. So at the very beginning, I explained to you how to work the little communion cups. But I want to explain to you what they mean. So that first little film, you pull it up and you get to a little wafer. Jesus told his disciples that bread represents his body that was broken. You're not receiving a whole loaf, you're receiving a part. Because he was broken for our sins. Open up a little bit more, you get to the juice. Jesus told his disciples that that represents his blood that was spilled. And so as we go through this process, I want you to remember and to know that Jesus really, physically, literally paid a price for our sins. This is not a story that we tell ourselves, and it's not a legend or a myth. It really, truly happened. All the things that we do that are against God's commands, Jesus suffered for those things. When we are greedy, when we are selfish, when we don't consider others more important than ourselves, when, when we are the kinds of people that preachers preach about, when we are that, Jesus suffered for that. So we need to remember that. So that's what this is about. And so, the passage that I use is in 1 Corinthians. And one thing that, that Paul was very clear to do for the church at, First Corinth, or at Corinth, Corinth was to remind them that this was a memorial service. It wasn't really a celebration. It wasn't a time for party. It was something to be taken very seriously. And so he told people to take time and reflect before they took communion to make sure that they don't eat or drink unworthily. Now, what does that mean? Well, what that means is, one, you need to be a believer. You've got to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to take communion. The second thing is that if you have sin in your life that you haven't repented of, this will be the time. Take a few moments in quiet. Pray to the Lord. Ask Him to reveal any sins that are in your life. Confess those sins. I mean, say the same thing about it. If God calls it sin, it's sin, no matter how, how you may feel differently. And then repent, turn away. Commit in your heart that you won't continue doing that. Then you will be ready to partake of communion. So I'm going to give us a moment of silence, and then we'll begin to distribute the elements. Let's pray.